Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. Stay tuned in just a few moments for the Thursday Morning Report. I'll be your host, Doug McKenty, this morning. I am speaking with herbalist Phyllis D. Light of the Appalachian Center for Herbal Studies. She is the author of Geography of Health, Southern and Appalachian Folk Medicine. We will be comparing and contrasting uh, folk herbalism uh, and modern Western medicine, medicine and Western herbalism. Without any further ado, I would like to introduce our guest, Miss Phyllis D. Light from the Appalachian Center for Herbal Studies. Phyllis, are you there? I am here. Excellent. Um, would you like to introduce yourself really quickly? Just tell, tell us a little bit about your experience with uh, herbalism and your other studies. Sure. Um, I'm um, the uh, fourth generation, actually, in my family to be an herbalist, so I come from a long line of herbalists, and basically that means we can trace in our family somebody has been an herbalist in the immediate family back to the Civil War. My, I suspect further than that, but that's just as far as the paper trail goes. Um, I was originally trained by my uh, grandmother on my father's side of the family, uh, who was, uh, she's, she was three-quarters Creek and a quarter Cherokee. Um, so I got some, um, my early training was a totally Native American traditional, which at this point in history also includes a lot of Appalachian folk medicine because the two different modalities had become so integrated and information changed back and forth that that, um, there was a lot of crossover. And what's the Appalachian tradition? Um, The Southern Appalachian tradition is um, a healing tradition based on the combination of Native American plant remedies, Scots-Irish folk remedies, and uh, African um, properties and, and spiritual healing aspects. When I say properties, I mean properties of uh, healing, not properties of the herbs. So it's a combination of base and of also Galenic medicine, which was the Greek medicine of Europe at that time period of um, settlement in the United States. So it's a combination of all four of those different kind of cultures coming together on one piece of land, which was the southern United States. And for for those um, who aren't aware, the South was settled a hundred years before the Northeast was. I know that in our textbooks in school, we get the impression that there wasn't a lot going on in this country until the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock 
But in actuality, the South had been settled about a hundred years by the time the Pilgrims landed. So there was already a lot of interaction going on between the Native Americans, um, the Spanish, the French, the Irish, and the Africans. You know, I'm actually... Uh-huh. Go ahead. Oh, excuse me. Just uh, as a McKenty myself, I'm kind of interested in learning a little bit about the Scots-Irish tradition because I wasn't sure that uh, that knowledge had even um, survived, uh, you know, the transition. <laughs> well, it not only has survived the transition uh, here, it's survived the transition in uh in the British Isles also, and there's a big resurgence now taking place um, over there. And, mm-hmm. and holding on to that tradition. But historically what um, also kind of get le- left out of the textbooks was in the um, 1500s, um, actually it started in the 1400s, but the big wave in the 1500s was this was a time period that England was dominating um, and invading Scotland and Ireland and taking over all the lands. And that happened in kind of three different waves over a period of about 100 years. So what would happen is the English would go in and, let's say, into to Ireland and um, take over a lard, it's L-A-I-R-D, um, lard's um, holdings, and uh, depose them of their lands. Well, they all had to leave. And because the Irish and Scottish held to a clan system, when the lords got kicked out, well, all the people did too, because that's who they held their loyalty to. So um, when France took in quite a number of the Irish, but most of them came into the New World, and they were arriving in the 1500s. I ran across one bit of documentation um, here in Alabama, in South Alabama, it said if you in the 15, in the 1600s, if you didn't know Gaelic, you couldn't deliver the mail because there were so many Irish and Scottish had settled here, fleeing the oppression of the uh, English at that time period. So the Irish and Scottish arrived in this country a lot earlier than than often appears in our um, fourth grade history books, um, and continued until right after the Civil War. So with them, every wave they brought their medicine with them, but the strongest part of the tradition came in the 15 and 16 and early 1700s because by the 1800s, the the traditional Irish folk medicine was getting diluted. By this point in time, it had been diluted by the English system. So it's still alive in front thriving somewhat in Southern Appalachian folk medicine. Um, uh, for for an example, you know, planting by the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was from uh, Scotland and Ireland originally, uh, learning how to plant by the moon and, and plant with the seasons and what the moon signs were. So, you know, so there are a lot of things that have continued. Uh, how we use rose herbally came to us from the Irish. I mean, we do have a wild rose here in the south, and we call it Cherokee rose. It's a little simple rose, um, simple petal. Um, But the Irish brought roses with them because they were planted around the cottages, and so they brought them with them. But not only because they were pretty, but because they were a medicine. 
and rose petals are very alkalizing. So if if um, if your body is too acid, um, you can drink rose petal tea, and it it sends it more toward alkaline. Mm. Or if your spaghetti sauce, you know, is too acid, if you throw a couple um, rose petals, three or throw four rose petals into the spaghetti sauce, it alkalizes it. Um, also, the rose root and stems uh, used for coughs, colds, and lung ailments. So there were a, there was a, quite a bit that's been handed down. Of course, now it's kind of all mixed up into what we call Southern Appalachian, Southern Appalachian folk medicine, but the roots of that are still there. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, can you describe for us a little bit about the, the, the sort of the traditional learning methodology? I think that most people think, um, you know, nowadays it's about going to school and getting a certificate and then you have gained the knowledge. But um, these lineages that have been passed down from generation to generation over time, it's just a different, kind of a different way of learning. Totally. Yeah, yeah totally. Well, I started when I was 10. And um, my grandparents started taking me um, out into the woods on long walks and to help me begin to learn to identify herbs. And keep in mind that they were gathering the whole time. So a lot of my initial learning as a young child is this is is ginseng. This is when you pick it. This is how you pick it. This is how you replant it. This is how you take care of your ginseng patch in the woods. Um, here's a golden seal. Here's how you take care, gather it. Here's how you prepare it. And so my early training was about how to pick out the plants in the woods. Uh, when I got a little older, you know, and, and of course while I was helping gather them, I was also learning how to prepare them. But it wasn't until I was a little older, probably up 14 or so, before my grandmother started saying, okay, now this is what you used golden seal for. This is when you use it, when, when this situation comes up or when someone is um, coughing up blood or, or um, if they have a big wound, this is how you, you know, this is when you use the golden seal. This is when you, this is when you use yellow root, um, which we have in abundance here in the South. Um, this is when a person has blood in their stool. This is when you use yellow. So then I began to learn that aspect. But most, um, a big difference is that my grandmother gave me one herb to know, and I had to study that herb for seven years. Wow. Until I knew every single thing that it could be used for how to prepare it for that use, and when to use it. And the herb my grandmother gave me to learn was ginseng. So I studied ginseng for seven years. Now, my dad, um, he was not the kind of herbalist midwife my grandmother was, but um, a good teacher. Uh, He only ever used ginseng for anything, ever. Yeah, that's a, that's actually amazing. I read a little bit about that on your website. I read the story about the rattlesnake and oh, uh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, you mentioned that, and I thought, well, that's that's pretty interesting. Ginseng must be incredibly powerful. <laughs> yeah, well, it is, and it's. I think the di- one difference here is that 
traditional herbalists were simplers, which meant you hmm. used kind of one herb for a situation instead of, you know, 15. You know, sometimes in traditional Chinese formulas, you might have 60 herbs in there. Yeah. Right? Um, you'll, in a true traditional Southern formula, there will never be more than five. And that's pushing it. Generally, four is about all you'll get, and that's one for each earth element and one herb for each direction. So you can see the Native American influence in these traditional formulas. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So um, four is about it, and maybe five, because sometimes you'll put cayenne in there just to make it work a little better, or you'll put a little bit of um, of an, an herb that would be considered... Um, a potentiator like wild ginger that kind of binds the four together, mm-hmm. uh, the way ether binds the four elements together. Um, but that's about it. So, you know, I think traditional Native American, traditional Scots-Irish, it was all about simpling. And in Native American culture and Irish and Scottish culture were so similar they each were clan systems. That's really, that's interesting, actually, yeah. Yeah. They, you know, and so they each had the clan system. Mm-hmm. They understood that about each other really well. They each only had four elements in their cosmology. They each counted time by the moons. Mm-hmm. You know, so traditional um, Scottish Celtic, we'll just say Celtic, mm-hmm. um, healing was very earth-oriented, the same way Native American practices were very earth-oriented. And so immediately there was a lot of intermarriage between the two because there was so much similarity between the two cultures. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the the elemental system and how the the four elements work together? And is this what you would use as a diagnostic tool? If you see someone, you're you're looking at the balance of the elements in them and then looking at herbs that can either counteract that or, you know, how does that interaction occur? Well, there's the four elements, uh, which is earth and water and air and fire. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's what kind of developed from those four elements, which was from Scots-Irish Native American, we have four taste, which came from African tradition. Uh, and the four taste are, and of course these four taste are in um, Native American and these four taste are in Irish too, but the Africans um, applied this in a different way, which are sweet, sour, um, we can call it... Um, Salty and bitter. Those are the four tastes. And any other taste or a combination of those four. So you could have pungent or you could have tart, whatever you want. But these are the four basic. And so in Southern folk medicine, you have a taste assigned to a blood type. And these are the Southern blood types. So you have sweet blood, for instance. Wow, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is just the dominant element inside each, a person. Each individual right, is going to have right, one. Right. Every, every person. Every person is a combination of all four of taste. Mm-hmm. Like they're, you're a combination of all four elements, and you are born more predominant with one over the other. But over your life span, you will. One may be more. Pre- 
prevalent than another at the time. In other words, we'll shift and change depending on our life circumstance and our environment. So example would be like bitter blood, uh, someone with bitter blood, and we've all met or have been in this situation ourselves. Right. <laughs> Sounds that way. <laughs> right. We've gone through a bad divorce or um, you got, you know, got a bad boss at work or, you know, some life is just, you know, you feel like life is turned against you and you get really bitter. Well, that's bitter blood. So what happens when a person has bitter blood, then we look in to see what herbs would help make a shift and take the person out of bitterness more toward sweetness. Malice, no, because uh. <laughs> <laughs> everybody thinks that sweet is the opposite of uh, bitter, uh. but actually, salt, it, salty, uh. is the opposite of bitter. I just want to pause. I knew fifteen hundred people listening were going to go sweet. I know that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> No, <laughs> but sweet is the opposite of sour, and salty is the opposite of bitter. All right. right. Yeah. Um, for example, here in the South, it, just to, get, to do this so people can kind of put it in perspective, uh-huh. here in the South we have um, a dish called red-eye gravy, which is absolutely delicious but so loaded in cholesterol you can't. So you take take salty ham, and you fry it up in a skillet, and then you take the ham out, and then you pour hot, perked coffee into the hot grease, okay, and you let it boil for about a minute, and you pour that over a hot butter biscuit. But what happens is the salt from the ham and the bitter from the coffee balance each other out, and it's this amazing taste. So anytime you need to balance out bitter, you do it with salt. It kind of neutralizes bitter. Where sweet can actually make bitter taste more bitter, give it a kind of a bitter that aftertaste lingers. Right. Where salt would just kind of totally neutralize it. Um, so, so anyway, that's how the sweet, sour, salty, bitter, these how the southern blood types came around, came into being. With, and I do use these. You know, I'll look and see, is, is somebody too sweet? And we've all heard the expression of sugar in the blood, mm-hmm. right, right? So they've got, obviously, that person has sweet blood. Um, is that going to be, uh, there's going to be a certain element, too. A sweet would be what kind of element? Earth. Would, okay. Yeah. And bitterness would be the fire element? Yeah. All right. I'm getting... I'm, You're getting it. I'm getting okay, it. <laughs> how, <laughs> okay. How about sour? Uh, air? Air. Yeah. And salty would be gotta be one left. Got to be water. That makes <laughs> right. sense. That's right. Right. So... Interesting. You, you look so... No, but not only do these um, southern blood types have a... Um, descript, physical description that goes along with them when they're out of balance. They also have a psychological, because both the Native Americans and the Scots-Irish and the Africans believed that your mental, emotional state reflected back on your physical condition. Now, this was not included in the Greek medicine, the Galenic medicine of Europe, because they had separated the mind-body, Right with Descartes, right. so they had separated mind-body. 
But these three other three groups never separated mind body. So well, in other folk medicine, you have the psychological description that goes along with each of these types. Yeah, I mean that's one of the. I, I don't know. To me, that's where the Western medicine really fails us. I mean, you see, I mean, what in the last fifty years, really, psychiatry has sort of started to evolve to try to help us. Uh, with our with our psychological issues, um, but it still just doesn't seem to take into account that like what you eat uh, affects your emotional state. I mean, no, you know? it doesn't take that into account at all. Yeah. Nor does it take into account your emotional traumas and their impact on the physical body. Right. Um, grief, for instance, uh, is really devastating physically for. A long period of time after the grief event, like the death of a loved one, are chronic stress, which my grandmother called worryation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's got worryation. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, you know, but these other tr- traditional folk uh, modalities do take this into account. So each one of these blood types has a personality description that goes along with them. Um, For instance, people with sweet blood, um, the face they show to the public is generally very sweet, and people think they're just really, really nice, and generally they are. But back at home, they might not be so nice. Mm -hmm. They may have a really sharp tongue, um, maybe hard to get along with, and they're pack rats. Ah. You know? Right. Um, right. They, they, just, they just save everything. Like guys with sweet blood, they have every tool they ever needed for anything. Oh, right. <laughs> and, but they don't know where it is. Yeah, yeah. Right. So when they go, when they need it, and they go to look for it, you know, they're they can't find it in the mess, and they, so they go buy another one. Right. <laughs> At the flea market or something. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> that sounds like an imbalance to me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and um, people with sour blood have really sharp tongues. You know, they're a little soured on life. Mm-hmm. They have tart tongues. They're cynical and they're sarcastic. They can cut you with their tongue in a heartbeat. Right. Right. Um, they're also really smart. Um, they read a lot. Um, and they, they use their wit a lot of times as a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, each, so each one of these blood types has a person. Salty people just want to be left alone. They don't want company. They're happy in their cave or in their reclusive area. They like being away from people. Um, they occasionally come out for gatherings, but they're crusty. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just kind of brusque. And they can get abrasive. Uh, people tend to get salty uh, when they get older. You know, salty more when they're older. Right. Almost all little kids are a little sour. Mm. Um, and um, a little sweet. They go back and forth between sweet and sour because they're growing. Right. Okay. Um, and so little kids have a hard time handling sour foods because it, it, it they're already sour. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and so they don't like really sour bit of fruits. Um, they like the sweet ones because mm-hmm. it's balancing out that sour. And you can tell when a little kid's getting a little too sour because um, they'll eat something like spaghetti or pizza and they'll get a red ring all the way around their mouth. Oh. 
where their skin's gotten a little irritated by the sourness, hmm. by the acid in the tomatoes. So this is kind of the um, what developed here in the South, and it developed over uh, a couple hundred years, and uh, it's been going on now, I guess, for 400 and some years. So it's a tradition that's not like in traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurveda that can boast six or eight thousand years or four to six thousand depending on who you're reading. But hey, it is our traditional American yeah, there we, that's folk what we got. medicine. <laughs> we got one and here it is. Yeah, we that, do have one. That's very cool. That's why I was excited to get you on the show because um, it, 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 uh, it just sort of uplifted me when I heard that this tradition was going strong uh, down there in the south. Uh, I have to take a moment here, Phyllis, just to remind everyone that they're listening to the Thursday Morning Report on KZYX. It's 928. We're almost halfway through the program already. Uh, I'm your host, Doug McKenty, and I'm speaking with Miss Phyllis Delight of the Appalachian Center for Herbal Studies, uh, also uh, author of the book Geography of Health, Southern and Appalachian Folk Medicine. Is that book out yet, Phyllis? Um, it's, it'll be out in the spring. Okay, great. Yeah, so if anybody's interested, they can check out my website. It'll be on there when it comes out. Yeah, that's and that's Phyllis D. Light, all one word, phyllisdlight.com. And uh, it, is, it is interesting. There are excerpts from the book uh, on the website, too. Uh, let's see. Uh, I wanted to talk just for a second about uh, wildcrafting, actually, because you brought it up. And, I, you know, I've had these experiences of, uh, of trying to do a little bit of sustainable farming myself and, and getting into it. And after a while, I realized, like, wow, this is a lot of work. If, if only I could walk <laughs> through the woods and find the spots that were perfect for these plants. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like a really efficient way to go about uh, cultivating, you know, agriculture instead of tearing up the earth and planting seeds and, you know, Absolutely. trying to develop the perfect microclimate on your little plot of land. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, we're fortunate in the south where we still have enough woods, wild woods left. And are y'all, do y'all have still wild woods where you live? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mendocino County has, in fact, it's beautiful with a lot of the redwoods up here and and still a lot of open spaces and plenty of land. Okay, good, cool. Yeah. So, you know, some, you'll know by, you know, looking at, you know, books for your region, what you can wildcraft and can't wildcraft in your region. But, you know, here in where I'm at in Alabama, we are very fortunate that the coastal plains kind of meet the Appalachians where I live. So I have access to lots of plants, um, lots of different species. I think about 4,000. Oh, wow. I can't use all 4,000. Right. You're right. <laughs> You know, a good herbalist here, you know, uh, Tommy Bass, one of my teachers, he could do about 400 mm-hmm. um, species in the woods, which is way more than you ever, ever need. My grandmother probably didn't know more than 20 or 25 um, and really only used about seven on a regular basis, but she knew what to do with those. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is easier, you know, the way she, the way I was taught originally, and, and some of this has changed just because some of our wild lands are are leaving us um, due to you know people building houses and WalMarts and things like that. Right. But, they always get in the way. Yeah, they do. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but you know, you found your patch in the woods of whatever was going wild, 
and you watched and you stewarded that patch, mm-hmm. which was the Native American way. So, for example, we have two different species of wild grapes here that are edible, and they just grow everywhere in the woods. So what my dad would do in the spring is he would go out in the woods and he would find, and he would remember where these were, where these grapevines were, and he would he would put a stick or a branch, he would cut a stick or a branch and stick in the ground because grapes won't bear if their weight is not supported. Now, people in wine country oh. probably know this. Right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but a grapevine running on the ground won't bear grapes. The weight of the vine has to be supported. So he would go through and support the weight of all these um, wild grapevines, and then back fall we'd go just like, get them. Um, you always knew where your ginseng patch was, and you protected that, and you never told anybody because people would come in and try to steal them. Right. Because that was cash money. Yeah. Um, that was a big deal. So, um, you know, you have to be careful there. Um, but, you know, you knew where your patches were. You didn't tell anybody. You you held onto your stewardship, and you didn't really affect the land. And even when my uh, grandparents planted um, their garden, they didn't till the soil. Um, they did circle gardens. Huh. And, and there might be 15 or 20 of these little circles over the land. But in the center of the circle, and the circle was about mm, 12 to, to uh, 24 inches in a diameter. Uh-huh. Right? So a pretty big circle. Let's say about 24. Pretty big circle. Um, and they would uh, take a hoe or a stick, and they would kind of break the ground up in the, within the circle. And in the center of the circle, they, they, and they healed it up a little bit, right? Uh-huh. So it's not flat. It's, uh, there's a little mound, a little hill. Uh, in the center of the hill, they planted corn. And they waited till the corn was peeping up out of the ground. And then on the circle outside of the corn, they planted the beans, and then when the beans were coming up on the circle outside the beans, it planted squash. Mm-hmm. So the corn grew first. The beans ran on the corn, supplied the nitrogen for the corn. And the squash shaded both and held the water into the ground. Yeah, so you're really looking at that symbiotic relationship between the three different plants working together. Right, right. And you didn't you didn't plant your garden in a row. You didn't till all the land, and then the next year you planted your circle garden in an area where there hadn't been one the year before. Huh. Right. Constantly moving it around. Constantly moving around, and after three or four years, you might come back to the same circle again. Mm. But by that time, the soil had replenished. Yeah, very interesting. A, a little uh, kind of a, a, a more sustainable crop rotation. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, fish was the common fertilizer. So, you know, you put a couple of fish in, in the mound, too, in the, to the hill when you planted. And uh, that was about it. And they had good crops, but it wasn't row, row planting like we do now. Very cool. Well, and it kind of fits. You know, the earth is a circle, circle garden. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the circle belongs to the earth. The shape, I mean... <laughs> All right, well, let's talk for a second uh, 
about Western herbalism and the kind of herbalism that we that we often see uh, on the grocery store shelf uh, versus the more traditional folk herbalism uh, that we're kind of more talking about this morning. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the difference there? Because I think a lot of the Western herbalism, it, it, it still separate. it does that mind-body separation thing. It doesn't really uh, incorporate the spirit of the plant and... You know, but I, I'm beginning to see a little shift in, back in that direction, which I find very heartening oh, good. Um, amongst some of the younger her- herbalists coming along. So I'm really, I'm really proud of that, that it, there's a shift coming back. And it, we do have kind of a cognitive disconnect in, in Western herbalism. You know, I kind of think of it as herbalists using Western plants in a um, phytotherapy model or a clinical model as opposed to um, traditional traditions in Western herbalism, uh, which include, like, Southern folk medicine, you have to, to look at the mind-body connection. You have to look at the personality. You have to look at and make a physical assessment by whatever means you're using to make that physical assessment. It's got to be all three of them. But so when we go into the health food store or, or to uh, uh, one of the big chain natural grocery stores, um, and there's, we see on the label something like, I don't know, black cohosh for hot flashes. We've really isolated a use of that plant in a Western pharmaceutical model, and, and not only are we not acknowledging the plant, we're not acknowledging the differences in people. Yeah, one of the things that I understand about Western medicine in general, I don't know if this is true of Western herbalism, but they're always trying to extract only the most potent ingredient from each plant. And then they extract that most potent ingredient, and then they say, you know, and then that has this function in the body. But uh, I, I think more more traditional ways of thinking about it uh, tries to incorporate not just the active ingredient in a plant, but its whole essence and it's how the, the whole thing... It's the synergy of all right. the chemical constituents within a plant that make it work. How do we know that's the most active ingredient? You know, they really right. thought high pericum was the active ingredient in St. John's wort for years and years and years, and, and after copious numbers of studying the isolated uh, phytochemical, they find out, well, that's not even it. Right. <laughs> well, that's and that's almost one of the. To me, it's a frustrating thing about Western medicine is that they're constantly saying, "Well, now we know this," and then five years later, "Oh no, we oh, were wrong." No, we were wrong. <laughs> and if they were really right about it all the time, you know, one out of two, one out of three new drugs coming on the market wouldn't be off in seven years. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, just look at that whole process. It just it doesn't work. Well, and the other interesting aspect about it is that um, they extract all these a- uh, active ingredients, and then they give you, you know, the pill that has the active ingredient in it. But then, if you need to take two or three different pills, then they don't really understand how the, you know, just as they don't inter- understand the interaction uh, between all the chemicals in the plant, and they only extract the active ingredient, they also don't seem to care much about what's going to happen when you take the two different pills or the three different pills. There's not a lot of, exactly you know, follow-up. You know, one, one wonderful thing about using whole plant constituents is that generally, if there is a harmful ingredient, uh, and I'm talking about 
constitu- chemical constituent within an, an herb. The the herb, I mean, the chemical constituent that nullifies that is in there too. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Right. So, so there is a balance with when you use whole plant constituents. They're using a balanced approach, and they're least likely to have any side effects, if ever, any side effects, when you use whole plant constituents. But when you're isolating a um, phytochemical constituent out of an herb, just, you know, kind of setting your, and you're taking it out of that synergistic environment, then you're kind of setting up the population to have side effects. And then they can go, oh, look how bad this herb is. Right, right. Right. We, we warned you how bad herbs are. Right, I know. It's frustrating. <laughs> Well, and they, and even to this day, you you see uh, the West, Western medicine uh, constantly skeptical of of herbalism and and trying to put different herbs on certain restrictive lists and uh, and make it more difficult for people to, I guess, go out into the woods and pick a few plants. <laughs> yeah, or grow your. I mean, grow them in your garden. I mean, right. Even if you didn't go out into the woods and pick your plants, and you decided to grow your own, you could grow your own pharmacy. And totally in your garden. Well, that and that really um, kind of strikes t- uh, to me you know, why the whole field of herbalism is so interesting to me because we see that it's so obvious that one of the problems, one of the probably the biggest problem, I think people are spending twenty percent of their income now on health care, and it's gotten uh, really out of control. And and uh, you know people are going in the direction of uh, pushing for the single payer health care or trying to get this Western medical system. Uh, to somehow work for them when it it really to me obviously isn't and um, you know herbal medicine is a great way to be able to say look I, I just don't need you anymore you, you know if you're not going to work for me right. then then I can plant a few plants in my garden and I can take care of myself um, totally and you know one of the things I think has happened in our country is we have two generations of, of people who traditional knowledge didn't get to them that it was it didn't get passed on. Right. Because traditional knowledge says you take care of yourself, you're personally responsible for your own health, these herbs and this good diet, these can all help. And then if that doesn't work, then you go see the doctor. But first, you try to do something for your health. And there were all of these little simple home remedies that used to get passed on. And all these simple herbal formulas that you could go down to a pharmacy and buy because they were considered home remedies, and everybody knew how to use them. So we have two generations of people here in this country that didn't get that information, that it got skipped out of them because it didn't get passed on generally from great-grandmother to grandmother to daughter, unfortunately. Right. Right. So, you know, that's that's kind of one of the things I see that's happened to us as a culture. We've not only lost our connection with growing our own food and our own herbs and our own medicines, but we have this information that's missing on how to use them that everybody used to know. Everybody used to know. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on the air with us and helping to fill in the gaps because I do think it's a it's a huge problem. I mean, the knowledge really uh, these traditional this traditional knowledge is is uh, 
you know, starting to become lost. I think there's probably a lot of Native American knowledge that, that is lost. And, and uh, totally. uh, you know, it's a terrible thing when th- a thousand-year-old tradition <laughs> is forgotten. It, it is, and uh, a lot of Scots-Irish. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of African, a lot of Latino um, culture is the same way. Um, it, they're, they're losing that, too. So somehow we do need to regain and begin using again that traditional knowledge which has been, you know, one of my missions is to pass it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, uh, it's 9.43. Let's, take, uh, let's start taking a few calls here. I'll just take a moment to uh, remind everyone that they're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. Uh, I'm your host, Doug McKenty. This morning I'm speaking with Phyllis Delight of the traditional Southern Appalachian Folk Medicine uh, excuse me, the Appalachian Center for Herbal Studies. Uh, and she's also coming out with a book shortly, Geography of Health, Southern and Appalachian Folk Medicine. Uh, and you can uh, check her out at phyllisdelight.com. So much to talk about, but we've only got 15 minutes left in the program now, so we better get uh, get some people in here. I'm sure they have many questions. 895-2448 is the number to get you in the studio. And I do actually have a caller that has been very patient here, so... Uh, good morning. You're on the Thursday Morning Report. Do you have a question for our guest? Good morning, Phyllis. I am thrilled out of my mind to hear your voice nice. on KZYX. And uh, there's a whole lot more than 50 to 100 people getting to hear you. <laughs> um, I want to thank Mary Pat Palmer because her longtime friendship with Matt Wood brought him here. And so um, as a longtime student of Matt's, um, I feel like I know you because uh, Matt always defers to you and so much of his teaching um, comes from your work. So my questions are, um, we have wild ginger here. It's a companion plant, but it's a companion plant in very um, um, sensitive habitats that are either old growth or second growth forests. Would you be willing to talk a little bit more about how you use wild ginger and what your experience of cultivating it is? And then would you, I know this is a big subject, but would you address what I've come to know you as speaking of as um, native heritage plants and their gift to us and the sensitivity we need to have around harvesting and if not harvesting, then purchasing? Okay. Thanks so much. Sure, I'll take those one at a time. Um, wild ginger um, is, I'll just give you some of the uses for, um, it's often put into traditional um, southern formulas to kind of heat up the formula and direct it and make it work a little bit better. Um, so it certainly directs to the digestive tract and it directs into the blood. So you can use wild ginger for that. Uh, it was also used uh, for urinary tract infections, uh, you know, not by itself, but um, in combination with other herbs, because wild ginger generally wasn't an herb used by itself, um, usually used with something else. Uh, so you could use it with a little pipsisawa or maybe, I guess, in your trid- out there, maybe some uva ursi um, to kind of direct um, and heat up the urinary tract system. Also used with... Mm, plant we call rattlesnake master, which is in the yucca family, um, for reproductive tract infections in women and prostate problems in men. So it's a, wild ginger is considered a diffusive. It's gone to send the herbs out into the blood, 
uh, through the digestive tract and through the kidneys so they can get where they need to be. Um, the other part of your question, and I have never cultivated wild ginger because there's just so much around here that I've never needed to. Um, so I can't address cultivation of wild ginger. I can say that here in our woods that it needs shade, needs some deep shade, and it needs a pretty good humus on the floor, um, on the forest floor. So I would look toward those things. It's not a sun-loving plant here. Um, and we can also here grow Jamaican ginger, which I don't know, maybe y'all can out there too, um, as an annual um, and it, lo- it likes the sun more, but our wild ginger does not. And as far as wild crafting, a good general rule of thumb is if there are, if there are seven plants in an area, you only take three. Um, you've got to leave enough for the plant to continue. You can't not harvest all the plants. You know, the way I was taught to harvest ginseng is when we found ginseng, we pulled it up, we dug it up. We actually have this special hoe, just a ginseng hoe to dig it up with. We broke off that little leg which, um, from which the stem and the leaves came out of, and we replanted that right then. So it went right back into the ground. Harvest, if you harvest black cohosh, you, if you pull it up out of the ground, you dig that up out of the ground, you replant at that moment back one-third of the roots. And that plant will keep growing. Um, and it will continue just like you hadn't gotten all the roots. So a lot of times if you're wild crafting, you can replant at the same time, which is not so devastating on the wild populations. Did that get your... I, yeah, I think that did answer a question. We, she, okay. uh, she's listening uh, okay. on the air now. Um, but I do have other calls coming in. Sure. So a uh, little, little bit over 10 minutes left in the program, 895-2448, if you want to get in, and we'll keep taking as many as we can here. Uh, good morning. You're on the Thursday Morning Report. Good. I just got the radio flipped off just in time. Perfect. Good morning. Um, question. A couple of things concern me. One is, for example, let's say that it's a given that there are some herbal remedies for some pretty serious problems but what I run into, um, and this is very close to me because I've just been diagnosed with cataracts in my right eye, a very troubling situation because they don't feel like they want to do the surgery to replace the lens until it's a pretty advanced condition. And the very idea of spending the next several years not being able to see well just doesn't make me feel good at all. So... I have right now in my hand a document uh, for an herbal remedy. I presume it's an herbal remedy for something called Cineraria. And uh, when my optometrist sold it to me, she told me, she said, the eye surgeon will probably poo-poo this. So I haven't taken it. I've been trying to do research on the Internet, and I haven't come up with anything in the way of control groups and that sort of thing. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Let me just talk about cataracts, because cataracts have been with human beings as long as there have been human beings. Excuse me. I'm going to interrupt you long enough to get off of the phone because your volume is not high enough for me to hear you. Okay. And I thank you in advance. Bye-bye. Thanks for your question. 
All right. Uh, okay. Cataracts. Cataracts, like I say, human beings have had cataracts since the beginning of time. One of the first documented surgeries in India about 4,000 years ago was cataracts. Oh, wow. Totally. And they had a special little knife that they held the person's eye open in, and they flicked off the cataract. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Here, traditionally, it wasn't, there's not an herb that really can break away a cataract that you can take internally. I mean, there's some that might help because a cataract is really kind of like a callus. Hmm. It's kind of like scar tissue. It's not quite scar tissue, but it's more like a callus um, over the lens because it's been damaged. And you know how you have a, a spot on your foot that you just step on every time and after a while you get a callus on that because right. you use rubbing it wrong. Yeah. Well, the same thing ha- kind of happens in the eye where you get, a ca- you get a cataract because over that lens area, the sun has been beating in damage for a long period of time. Now, the person that doesn't get cataracts has either, has, you know, traditionally, is someone who's had a lot of phytonutrients, especially the lutein and like bilberry, or here we would say huckleberry or blueberry. You know, lots of berries and the phytonutrients in berries. Can you explain that word phytonutrients for us? Phytonutrients are, is nutritional aspects of plants that our body absolutely needs, but they're not vitamins and they're not minerals. Okay. So a phytoestrogen is a phytonutrient. Resveratrol is a phytonutrient. Um, so, so the higher a person's nutritional status, generally the less apt they are to get cataracts. And a lot of the old folks did not get cataracts because they had their own garden and they ate a lot of fruits and vegetables and it was all homegrown and, you know, and they didn't get it. The other thing is stay out of the sun. Uh, if you're in the sun, sunglasses may help or may not. I, they used to say sunglasses help. I just read a study where they decided sunglasses didn't help. Mm. Uh, also, enough vitamin A in the diet. And now all these things you can do to maybe start softening the cataract up. But the traditional remedies in the South were eye washes that, because it's, it's hardened material. Um, maybe the phytonutrients will start softening it up, but it was eye washes that, that you did on a daily basis for a period of time that kind of ate away at it and washed away. So it wasn't... Well, and these were effective. And these were effective. So without surgery, you're, you're getting rid of a, a cataract with a wash. With a wash. That's, that's fascinating. Um, and good nutrition. You still got to do those nutrients. And I'm not familiar with the product that he was talking about, so I can't address that product mm-hmm. or what's in it. But there is some, you know, lutein, definitely. Um, the phytonutrients in bilberry or blueberry, yes. Cranberry, yes. Any of the berries generally are going to help the eyes. And vitamin A, good cod liver oil, vitamin D, these are the things we need for good eyes. Well, I hope that uh, helps that caller out. Definitely interesting. I wouldn't have imagined being able to get rid of one with, uh, without uh, surgery. We've only got a few minutes left. I think I'm going to try to squeeze one more caller in. Let's see if we can make it uh, kind of quick, though. Good morning. You're on KZYX. Do you have a question for our guest? Really quickly, please. We're just talking about the wild ginger. Uh, it's very easy to cultivate from divisions. 
uh, have a nursery uh, jug handle nature center, mm-hmm. and we grow it quite easily, and it even sprouts from the floor of the nursery as the seeds fall off. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's very easy to cultivate through division, and when you plant it, we have a lot of it planted around where I work. Um, it um, likes a shady, cool, moist area to grow, and it grows prolifically. All right. Well, very good to know. Okay. Thanks. All right. Bye. All right, so we learned a little bit about ginger around here. Let me uh, let me try to snag this one more phone call. Okay. Uh, good morning. You're on KZYX. Do you have a question for Phyllis this morning? Yes. Thank you for, uh, so much for your show. Mm-hmm. I have uh, I have had from sun damage uh, basal cell carcinoma on my face, and I recently at our local uh, health food store here in, in Mendocino uh, have uh, got uh, a a comp a, a combination called fluorescence and it's uh, passed down from the Ojibwa and it is uh, it contains other things but the main ingredients are uh, sorrel burdock root slippery elm and rhubarb root and I'm wondering if you know these things and, and it says also in the I have a I borrowed a book uh, that says the proportions you know is very uh, important as you were saying before so the key is proportion it has to be right, and that uh, uh, interesting what you were saying about you know what does he call it potential uh, potential uh, things like uh, ginger that you're saying potentiate uh, other herbs. Do you know something of this combination? It's it's called the Easyac Report. Is the book? It's Canada's remarkable unknown mm-hmm. cancer remedy. Yep. It's called the Easy Act Report by Richard Thomas. Yep, familiar with it. Yes. Yes. All right. Yeah. Do, do you highly suggest that I I continue doing this? Well, um, the Easy Act formula has has been around a long time, and it and I know it's attributed to, to the Ojibwe, um, and it may be, but there's a lot of European herbs in there. Most of the herbs in there are not really uh, traditional Native American herbs. That's what but, he says also, is that some are from the Orient as well. Right. Um, the turkey rhubarb is from the Orient. Um, we do have wood sorrel here. And um, so I think, from my point of view, and this is just my personal opinion, I think it's probably a, a good combination between Native American know-how and some European herbs. Uh-huh. Um, well, he speaks just as you were speaking about these things. Okay, good. Um, also... I, I, I do recommend that, and it's easy to make yourself. You can buy those herbs in bulk, and you can make it yourself for a fraction of the cost. You have to cook it 12 hours. Um, combine the herbs, cook it for 12 hours, and then let it sit for six and recook it for three. Um, it's, and this is one difference um, between kind of like traditional remedies you know, most traditional remedies, you really had to cook up the herb for a good 30 minutes. I mean, a good roll and boil, sometimes yeah. hours, sometimes uh-huh. half a day, um, uh-huh. sometimes uh, sometimes two days. Well, we've um, only got about 60 seconds left. Okay. Also. So I, I think it's a so good much. combination for some things, and it would certainly support your immune system and, and start a cleansing process. But you're going to need something topical on that skin cancer. It's okay. not going to heal it from the inside. You needed to get it from both inside and outside. Well, uh, here in the South, real, we, so. you know, we have some black salves 
that address that. Sometimes, yes, I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, sometimes iodine will do it. Okay, you know, well... Plano well, iodine will, will take care. Wild lettuce, I mean, so there, so you need to get it from both ends. And okay. so I would say investigate that. Can you give your information how one could contact you? It's on the. Uh, it's on my website. If you'll go on my website, I'm not. Um, uh, I'm computer illiterate. I, all right, you got a pen and piece of paper. Yes, I do. Two five six nine three one two three four five one. Zero three five one. What was the first? What was the prefix? Two five six. Two five six. Thank you okay. so much. All right. I'm afraid I'm going to have to cut it off there. But thanks for your call. I didn't get the name. Also. Um, can I put in one plug? Sure, yeah. Sure. I'm going to be at a conference um, September 17th through 19th at the Ghost Ranch near Santa Fe, my first trip to the desert. Um, and it's a Traditions in Western Herbalism Conference. And there are some really good traditional Western herbalists that are going to be there, and we're going to talk about how to do all this stuff. I just wanted to get your name there. It's Phyllis Light. Louis Sagan? Phyllis Light. Light. Yeah. Okay. As in light or L-I-G-H-D. There you go, L-I-G-H-D. Thank but, you so much. Thank you for your call. All right, very good, Phyllis. We're kind of uh, bumping up on the uh, end of the hour here. Do you just want to uh, have a few really quick concluding remarks, and then we can leave with your uh, with your website again? Yeah, I mean, if, you know, herbs are, are foods and herbs, things that come from the ground are our best source of healing. If you can't wildcraft them, grow them. Find somebody in your neighborhood that is growing. Take a class. Learn how to do this. There are herb schools all over the country now. There's no no reason you can't learn firsthand how to do traditional herbalism. All right. Get out there and do it. Thanks. Thanks, Phyllis. Thank you so much. That was an excellent interview. Maybe we'll do it again sometime. I only got through about half of what I wanted to talk about. (laughs) Sure. Just any time. Let me know. All right. Thanks again. Alrighty, bye-bye. Take care. Uh, and I just want to tell everyone that you've been listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah K201HR 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting Listener Supported Community Radio streaming on the web at kzyx.org.